what's up? My name is The Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And this is So Curious, a podcast presented to you by the Franklin Institute. This season is all about the science of music. And today we are taking it all the way back to the very beginning. Yeah, that's right. Because this episode, we're looking at the origins of music. Where does it come from? To give us the evolutionary perspective, we're going to be talking to author and biologist Dr. David George Haskell. Then to help us understand the cultural origins of music, we'll be joined by ethnomusicologist Dr. Carol Muller. And then to figure out the mathematical origins of music in sound waves, we're going to be speaking with acoustician Philip Faraci. All right, Bay, what's the first song that you remember hearing? Great question. You know, it probably was something my mother sung to me. Mm-hmm. I think know, that's same here. Lullaby like things. I think like the first CD I purchased was it's either between Blink 182, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Uh huh. Or the Romeo Must Die soundtrack with Aaliyah and DMX. Wow, what a deep cut. I know for a fact my first CD that I purchased was In Sync, No Strings Attached. Classic. All right, well, so now that we've talked about like our personal music origins, let's, mm -hmm, (laughs) let's talk about the origin of music as humans, the human race. So, Dr. David George Haskell, welcome to the So Curious podcast. Hey, Bay. Hey, Kirsten. It's wonderful to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. So first and foremost, can you do us a favor? Introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Yeah, so I'm David Haskell, and I'm a biologist, but also a writer. I've written books about how people and non-human beings are entangled together. Mm. My latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, looks at that question through sound, through the rich marvels of the sonic world, including human speech and music, but also the voices of frogs and dinosaurs and birds and trees. And the book is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. So congratulations. (laughs) Oh my God. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. How did human beings evolve? How did their bodies grow to hear? So hearing long predates being a human. And in fact, it even predates being an animal. So if you look back in evolutionary time, single-celled creatures often have little hairs poking out of their cells. And if a sound wave comes past, like vibrations in the water or a little pressure wave in the water, that makes the hairs move. And the little single-celled creature then becomes aware that a predator is coming or there's food nearby or there's water flowing. It's a, a very sort of ancestral primitive form of hearing. And then those same little hairs that stuck out from the cells were retained in the first animals. And then our ancestors, the fish, had them on their bodies, as do living fish today, in little canals on the body. And when I'm listening to you speak or to a bird singing out on the street outside my house, the sound waves are coming through the outer part of the ear, through the eardrum and the bones. And then ultimately, they wind up in the inner ear, which is a little coil filled with water, almost like little drops of seawater, a memory of the ocean carried in our heads. And inside those coils are all the little hairs that pick up the vibrations and turn it into what we then perceive in our brains as sound. So hearing in humans is, in a way, it's like a form of embodied kinship. When I'm hearing... I'm kind of in kinship, in relationship with all the other animals on the planet who have hairs deployed on their bodies 
in different ways than ours, of course, like insects have hairs in their leg joints and their antennas, but they're hearing through them. We're hearing through our inner ears. So that's the sort of deep story of hearing in humans. That was cool. That's in Wow. <laughs> that was cool. That's wild. I'm noticing a theme of like vibration and hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the, the feeling it in our bodies is an important thing because we think about hearing and I just described hearing as inner ear. But in fact, we hear particularly low frequency sounds mm. through our whole body. Like humans have, we have our own particular way of doing that. But other creatures, like if you're an insect standing on a twig or a fish or a whale in the ocean, you're kind of swimming in sound and it's all around and in you in a way that we can sort of get a feel, you know, if we're in a loud party, right, and we're feeling the music in our body. For whales and fish, even quiet sounds flow all into their muscles and their body cavities. Whales are some of the most vocally sophisticated creatures on the planet. And unfortunately, we're pumping a lot of shipping sound and seismic exploration into their habitat, really stressing them out and really hurting them. You kind of already started to touch on the next question, which was about vocalizing. Like, how has the human vocal tract evolved? And like, what are the similarities and differences with other species? Yeah. So we're, I mean, you compare us to many other mammals, we are like super sophisticated in the way that we can shape sound using our vocal folds down in, in our throat, but especially the sound as it comes up the back throat and into the mouth, the movements of the lip and the tongue, all kinds of shaping happen multiple times per second to add all these nuances to the shape of the sound. In humans, anatomy is only part of the story, because if you look at chimps, and bonobos and gorillas, you know, some of our closest relatives on the evolutionary tree, their vocal tract is similar to ours. Where we are radically different is in our brain, is in the links between learning and perception and rapid modification of the nerves that control the tongue and, and the vocal apparatus. And so we take some fairly standard primate hardware, if you like, and then add on to that some amazing cognitive and brain abilities that are just extraordinary, allow us not just to make the sound, but to hear and perceive and hear all these subtle differences. Like if I say yes, or yes, or yes, I mean, it's the same word, but there's a totally different meaning. One is mm. sarcastic, one is enthusiastic. And the sonic differences are really, really small, but Wow, we really understand it. Absolutely. Sarcasm is definitely its own language. Mm -hmm, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and now from an evolutionary perspective, can I ask you, why do we have music? Huge question. Because <laughs> music, I mean, music is one of those things that is universal across cultures. Sung music and people using their voices, but also combining the voices with instruments and that universality also has some common patterns. Like if you look at the structure of songs across really, really diverse cultures all around the world, there are always songs involved in infant care, like lullabies. Mm. There are songs around healing. There are songs around dance, getting people together and move to move our bodies. And then there are love songs, of course. Mm. So it's a fundamental human property how and why it evolved is hard to discern from the fossil record, right? Because music doesn't leave fossils. But we can get an indirect view of this by looking, say, at our close cousins, the great apes, that use percussion 
So if you look at chimpanzees, they'll grab rocks and bang them on trees in a way that is sending this drumming signal out to the rest of their population. What humans do is use that percussive beat in a much more steady and standardized way. So that's mm. part of what makes us unique in our music is a really solid beat. The other thing is combining spoken language like song lyrics with instrumental music that is getting into the textures of sound. And we know this really activates us emotionally. It draws us together. It's like a social glue that connects us all together. And the genes that are required for that kind of vocal production and, and also the anatomy, the structure of the human hyoid bone, which is a bone in our throat, those are about half a million years old. Mm. So human music probably goes back at least half a million years, and its function is most likely to draw us into social connection and social harmony with one another. Mm, thank you for that. And my last question is, so you have written a lot about noise pollution. And can you just kind of define what noise pollution is and why you feel that it's important to protect the natural world from it? What do you want our listeners to leave thinking about moving forward? Sure. Noise is unwanted and uncontrollable sound. And one of the problems with noise is that it's messing with the social lives of other creatures like whales and birds and frogs. That We create so much noise that they can't even hear one another. And so their social systems fall apart. Mm. But noise is also a huge environmental justice issue in the human community. So it's not just about other species. If you live next to a busy highway, mm. even if you're used to that sound, your blood pressure is higher and you have a higher risk of heart disease. And in fact, in the European Union, they've estimated that there are tens of thousands of new cases of heart disease every year, just as an effect of noise. And of course, we know that road building and industrial siting in general in the US and not just in the US, but it's a particular problem in US cities, has been massively racist and also classist. And so then the question is how as city planners, for example, and as voters, do we make sure that protecting the sensory integrity of everybody, all humans, but also non-humans that we live around becomes a priority. So noise isn't an ephemeral thing over on the side. It's right at the center of our human experience and the way that we relate one to another. And how wow. do we work to prevent it? Should we be walking around with like noise cancellation headphones with like white noise playing or something like that? Like yeah. what, what can we do to try, try to like push back against this a little bit? Yeah. So at an individual level, yeah, there are lots of things you can do, you know, using noise canceling earbuds or headphones or other ways of mitigating the noise that comes in can be helpful. But I think beyond the individual, collectively, we also need to favor things like investing in public transit, making sure that in the city, the city is oriented around human beings, not just around cars. Mm. Because, of course, cars and trucks, we need them for certain things in our lives. But we have quite literally built the human habitat around machines rather than around human beings. The answer to how to achieve that balance is different depending on which neighborhood is involved and which city. So there isn't one size fits all. But the key answer is to have noise and other forms of environmental justice like exposure to traffic fumes, particulate pollution, which is strongly associated with noise at the top of the agenda. Because for decades, it's been not even on the agenda, which mm -hmm. is why we have interstates going right the way through 
some neighborhoods. Now, there are things we can do to mitigate that and to make sure that we're not making those errors in, in the future. But this is this is a place where ecology and sensory awareness intersects with policymaking and questions of justice in, in really important ways. Wow. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you both. See you, Dr. Asko. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Haskell, for speaking so beautifully about evolutionary biology. So, so awesome. And now joining us from South Africa, by the way, is Dr. Carol Muller. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Mm, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. I am a professor of music at the University of Pennsylvania. I teach a lot of things that aren't maybe normally taught in music departments. <laughs> I've got a very, very curious mind. So I'm South African born, and a lot of my thinking is very shaped by having been born in South Africa. I lived through the apartheid transition. I teach a world music class. I do a lot of community engagement at Penn in West Philly. Okay, so Dr. Muller, I want to follow up with mm. one of the most complex questions that we have for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. What is music? Ah, <laughs> well, you know what? It's a really good question, actually. I think it is. And it's a very difficult one to answer because there is this interesting work by Hank Jan Hennig, and he said, actually, it's not helpful to talk about music as a universal thing. We say that all communities have it and we assume we know what it is. But he's saying, let's think about the idea of musicality rather than music. So it's the capacity for music. And I think if we change it from music to musicality, we have a better understanding of how it really is universal. In my field, we've always said music is a human element and as mm. a human quality, right? The capacity to make music. But I think more and more we're understanding that the animal world has capacity in certain kinds of ways and only some animals. So actually, what is music is amazing question. Yeah. And we don't have an answer. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. that is beautiful. And so is there a single origin point of where music came from? Um, I don't think we're really at the point where we can. There's a lot of speculation. Mm. So the big question in the early part of the 21st century, in the early 2000s, was did language precede music? This was a really big question. And it was really because Darwin said that language preceded music in a very simple way, I'm just saying. And then that sort of went out of fashion. A lot of people say music doesn't have any evolutionary benefit. It's a cultural benefit rather than an evolutionary benefit. So it wouldn't have been for human survival. I think people are are not convinced of that claim anymore. I think really mm. people think that music has an evolutionary capacity. Neuroscientists say that singing is important for sexual selection, so mating. Mm. Definitely mating is important. Then the, the, one of the other things, we've done a lot of looking in the last 20 years or so at the mother-child relationship because music is almost innate in a child when they are born. Very quickly a child can recognize sound and recognize melody and move to a beat. The question is, why does it develop and why did it develop at all? There is interesting stuff starting to happen. Like it's been posited by somebody at Harvard, Lewis Liebenberg. He says that tracking is the first form of scientific thinking, not just hunting, but actually tracking the spore of animals and predicting where an animal is going to go based on where it has been. In that context, the idea is that it wasn't music, as we know, it was sounding. So 
if you were out in the wild and you needed to hunt down an animal, if you can imitate them exactly, then you lure them into a net and you catch them or you scream loudly and frighten them away. The sounding is what enables you to survive, either for your food source or for not being in danger. Mm. So that is one of the very core things. And it also builds a sense of community pride, building social cohesion. But it, it largely, I think, was to keep the danger out and build cohesion inside. Now, how would you say wow. we got all the way from that point to the commercialization of music, you know, yeah. if, if it covered, covered that ground for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a little example from like the 1990s, maybe early 2000s. It's called the Pygmy Lullaby or the Roraguela Lullaby, but it was a field recording done by an ethnomusicologist who recorded this mother singing to a child in the Solomon Islands. And somehow it got picked up by a ton of people and it became a huge kind of electronic music hit. It was called a pygmy lullaby when it wasn't pygmies. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh It got into a 4-4 beat instead of being a kind of call and response between a mother and a child. It was completely transformed. So I think that, first of all, we are products of our environment and we've always used new technology in music making. From the beginning of time, hunting bows were also musical bows. So if somebody would go hunting and then you put a good resonator onto the bow and you produce a fundamental pitch and overtones, basic acoustics, right from the beginning. And then you go into a cave, which is where a lot of these hunter-gatherers were. That's a kind of very resonant space. And so you sing inside the cave. So you're imitating what's happening on the musical bow. You're going into a cave. Then there's a whole ritual practice attached to it. So I think music is fundamental to our lives. And because it is fundamental, we want to use new technologies and innovate with it. We have all these genres of music, right? How do these genres form and, like, how do they start in certain cultures and then become so prevalent within them? I think that's a really great question. I don't think the answer is that easy. How does a genre become what it is? It must start in some kind of group, in some kind of community. Mm. Things happen in bars and then becomes a kind of a bar culture. It happens in church. I mean, just think of how many African-American performers started singing in church. Mm. So it started as one thing. You got a very powerful voice and then you stepped out and put it in a new context. Then you're taking that music and you're recontextualizing it. Maybe you're getting into trouble over recontextualizing it because it's sacred and secular. So I, I think it's just, it's an integral part. There is something effective about the bond that is created, the sense of connection that's created between people. And it has to be tied to some sort of repetitive everyday experience and then maybe become something else. I mean, the music industry is also really interested in in the way in which it has shaped some things and not shaped others. So if we want to know how things come about, I think sometimes it's just by happen chance. If somebody has an idea and just like persists, can we trace modern genres of American music to different, you know, cultures throughout history? So can hip-hop music be traced to a culture, you know, deep in the past of the world? Can country music be traced to a culture on the other side of the planet? Is there connective tissue? Yeah, because I think, like, I associate 
different genres with whatever would be the area where it would be most prevalent. Like, if you try to say that rap music did not come from the black culture, you're playing yourself, right? And same with country music. I'm sure there's many other examples, but... I mean, off the top of my head, I know, like, the banjo instrument, like, can be traced to West Africa and and, and different groups in Mm. that space. But I I wanted you to kind of, like, give us some nuggets about any origins that you might know about these uh, genres. There are people who have said that the hip-hop rap musician kind of goes back to the African griot tradition in West Africa. That's a tradition that goes back to the 13th century, right? We know that it's an oral history. I think sometimes emotionally you want to look for connections too. I don't know that we can always put a history behind every kind of contemporary genre. So this is what I would say as an ethnomusicologist and somebody who comes from Africa Instead of just saying what is it in the past, the thing is to see how does it manifest, how does it distribute and indigenize itself in other places. So hip-hop is literally all over the world. It has been such a powerful genre politically for the poor, the dispossessed. People take it, they tell stories about their own communities, they sing it in their own languages. I mean, I think we don't fully celebrate the real power of a genre like hip-hop. But just this weekend, I just came back from a jazz festival in the rural part of South Africa. Mm. And this is how it indigenized. So I wrote a book on a South African jazz musician. I started the project when I was a grad student at NYU, and it took 20 years. The book came out. But when I was writing that book, nobody in academia I'm not saying the critics, the music critics and the musicians, but in academia, they didn't know that jazz happened outside of America. So that's the one thing is that I think that we're not always aware of what's happening elsewhere in the world. Jazz in South Africa has been there almost since the beginning of jazz in America because of sound recording technology. A lot of it got put into the townships. And then in the 1980s, Darius Brubeck, the son of Dave, came to my university where I was an undergrad and started the jazz program. So jazz is very, very big and prolific in South Africa. This festival I went to, I wanted to go to it and I came to South Africa because it's in a landscape. And this is really important for how it localizes and indigenizes. I walked on land that has been around since before dinosaurs. Wow. Before dinosaurs. The rocks go like around because that's where the continents collided. So we did walks, these kinds of walks around this amazing environment. We walk like 10 steps and you go from one biome, as they call them, to another, and it's covering 100,000 years. And the plant life is different as you walk from each. And in that context, jazz improvisation happened. Um, It was about community building, about interracial working together. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Sometimes we have to invent the communities. We have to invent the ways in which we do it. I mean, that's an amazing sentiment to end on. Thank you for this, because I know Bay and I can go on this topic all day. No, we can. And that was (laughs) mind-blowing, honestly, to talk about continents colliding. Yeah, Yeah, this (laughs) this is amazing. Thanks, Dr. Muller, for coming on the show, even from the other side of the globe. We really appreciate it. So to round out this whole discussion on origins, we are now joined by Philip Faraci to speak on the acoustic origins of music. So, Phil, thank you so much for coming on to the So Curious podcast. Introduce yourself. Tell us about what you do. Brag about yourself for a minute. 
Let's see. First of all, I'm just a couple of days from retirement. Let's from go. Teaching. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm a, a full-time instructor at the University of Hartford with an engineering degree in what's called acoustics engineering and music. I was a practicing acoustical engineer for about 20 years, and my area of specialty was piano design. I was working for Steinway & Sons for many years Wow! as a staff engineer, and then I started teaching. This is one of my several lives. Nice. All right. Can you tell us what are the basics of acoustics? So first of all, acoustics is called the science of sound. The study of all things related to sound production, control, and perception. The basic format of acoustics is three things. We have a source, which is the source of the sound energy. You have the path, which is the, the way that the sound travels, where it goes. And then you have the receiver, which is the person who hears the sound or a microphone. So you can think of sound is from the point of view of the source itself, which makes the sound, or the sound as it reaches the listener. So when it comes to acoustics within music, what is the difference between something being a sound, just a sound, and a music note specifically? What's the, Where is that line drawn? Yeah, what a good question. We classify musical sound as being one of three things. The first is a chord. That's where there is a very simple mathematical relationship between the tones in the sound. And so it sounds pleasing, as they say, like a chord, like a major chord or a minor chord in music. Those notes, those frequencies have a special relationship that's very mathematically simple. And because of that, it sounds harmonious to us. And then the second one is called a pitch with timbre. And that's when you have a bunch of tones together that don't have a very simple relationship, mathematically, more complex. So, you know, the ear is a very sophisticated frequency analyzer, very sophisticated. And what it does is it hears all these separate tones and it says, well, there's kind of a relationship between these tones, but I can't really quite figure it all out. So what I'm gonna say is the lowest frequency I hear, I'm gonna say that's the tone. And then all the other frequencies that are in there create what's called the timbre of the sound or the tone quality. So it could be bright or dull or harsh or, you know, that type of thing. That's called pitch with timbre. And then finally, the third stage is if the ear cannot distinguish any type of harmonic relationship at all between the notes, it spits the bit and says, okay, this note, this is unpitched mm. and just says, this is sound. This is a sound, but it doesn't have a pitch. And can you talk about what it means for two notes to be in tune? Right. Yeah. How do you tune things, especially working for like Steinway and Sons? And I actually will follow up by saying like, you know, why do we have tuning systems? Well, first of all, all music, no matter what culture it is, is all based on a very special musical relationship called the octave. Pythagoras figured this out about 2,500 years ago when he started taking strings of various lengths and comparing their pitches. He would then pinch a string in various places along it, like in the middle, and, th and he would notice the difference between the pitch of the unpinched string and the pinched string, and he would mm -hmm. make comparisons. And, and that's where he started to understand these relationships, these harmonic relationships, and how tones interact with each other. 
earlier, you mentioned harmonics. Can you talk about that more? What is a harmonic? Yeah, from a mathematical standpoint, a harmonic is when, remember, I talked about a sound and timbre. When a string vibrates, it has a pitch with timbre. When you hear the pitch, that's the fundamental frequency of vibration of the string. The fundamental means the lowest one. And then it has a bunch of other frequencies above it, and they're related to the fundamental in a special way. And if there are integer multiples of that frequency, like, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400, those are called harmonics. Can you talk about non-Western tunings and how that might apply to, I guess, the different instruments that you might find in different cultures? Yeah, it's a, an interesting thing about tunings. Um, according to Arthur Bonatti, who's one of the premier acousticians of his day, he said that most scales of different cultures in the, in the world are very similar to the seven-note scale that we use. And I mean, not exactly, but very similar. The seven-note scale is like a major scale or mm. you know a minor scale. They call it the diatonic scale, right? The diatonic scale means a combination of half steps and whole steps, or semitones and two semitones. And that the thing that made them sound different or microtonal was a lot of the types of ornaments or effects that they play with. I'm familiar with this in Indian music because I've had some experience playing Indian music. And it is just like that. The ragas are very similar to major scales in Western music, except that they have these special ways of producing effects, which they call microtonal effects by like wiggling the strings and, you know, doing other things, something very similar to what jazz musicians do. So there really isn't too much of a difference as far as we can tell from all the music that's been studied. And there's been a lot of studies on various cultures. Music is so funny because it's like, look at all these differences. But it's not really that different. Yeah, it's so <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. And so are we able to pinpoint like the first tuning system? First of all, there's a lot of tuning systems that have been tried mm. <laughs> and some have failed and, and some have persisted. And the way it usually works is it's not very organized. It's just something that kind of filters through the culture. When something works and people like it, they adopt it. Mm. And so what happens is over time, certain types of scales or certain types of tunings tend to hold sway. Now, this is just Western music. Now, in Europe, in the like 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, every town like had its own tuning practically. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For instance, A440. A is like a reference pitch that orchestras tune to. It's 440 cycles per second. That was only settled upon in about the last hundred years. There were different A notes throughout Europe. If you went to Germany, they tuned their organs with A, you know, 452. Or in England, they tuned it with 447. And some of them were like significantly different. Yeah, that's got to cause some chaos because then sheet yeah. music is not universal. And instruments are pitched differently. I mean, if you played an A in one place and played an A in another place, you'd get two different tones. They would clash. There would be uh, some dissonance between them. This has been such a mind-blowing conversation. Yeah, thank honestly. you for this. This season that we're doing is science of music. And it's interesting because those two words sound like they could be total antitheses, science and music, right? But you're really proving like they really do go hand in hand. So thank you. Oh, no, yeah. The first person that ever made that impression on me was my high school senior calculus teacher 
who was also an opera singer. Wow. And I used to think that music and math, which I've always been passionately interested in both, was some weird contradiction in terms which made me a strange person. And she was the first one to tell me, no, absolutely not. Mathematics and music are very closely related. Thank you so much, Philip Faraci. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Philip Faraci, for coming on the show to explain such a complicated topic to Kirsten and me. Yeah, and what's wild is that this is only like scratching the surface of this topic. So everyone, you know what I'm going to say. Please be sure to join us next week, Tuesday. We are going to learn all about the science and technology behind a concept that is so, so, so important in music, but it's often very misunderstood. I know I have a couple misconceptions about it that I would like to set straight. Timbre. When you hear a sound that sounds like that, like there's no reference point in life where like, oh, that sounds like a string. Like, well, maybe sort of, mm-hmm. but not really. It's going to be a lot of fun. Please listen. So please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And please make sure to leave us a review. Even just a five star goes such a long way. Thank you all so much. And above all, go birds. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist. And Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mixing engineer is Justin Berger. And our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. Thanks. Thank you. See ya.